Cruella DeVille. See, there are a lot of people that didn't laugh because they don't even have any idea who Cruella DeVille is. Darth Vader and the Joker. What do these people have in common? Well, they were, they were the epitome of evil for a particular generation. For a, for a particular generation, everybody knew who Cruella DeVille was. What kind of person wants to do the kinds of things that she wanted to do to 101 Dalmatians? And then there was Darth Vader. Who wants to, who wants to take down the, the, the empire? Well, Darth Vader did. Who could breathe like that? Well, the embodiment of evil breathes like Darth Vader would breathe. And then I like the, I like the old Batman and Robin. The new Batman and Robin doesn't do much for me, but the Joker, when I, when I saw excerpts on commercials of the Joker, he wasn't the old school Joker. He was a new school Joker. There wasn't anybody more diabolical and, uh, and cunning and, and wicked than, than the Joker. When you think of Cruella de Vil and you think of uh, Darth Vader and the Joker, a lot of people think of the devil that way. He's a mythological figure. He's the evil inside all of us. He's this structure and pattern of wickedness that kind of permeates society, but he's not a real spiritual being. You know, only in Western civilization do people believe that. In other parts of the world, they very much believe in the reality of the supernatural. They very much believe in the reality of angels and demons and, and uh, beings that they call by different names, but, uh, but, but in essence, what the Bible describes as Satan and, and, and demons. And we've been raised not to believe in supernatural beings and in supernatural events. It's a part of the fabric. It's a part of the makeup of the higher academic institutions of our day. You're mocked and taunted and belittled and thought of, uh, of as antiquated. If you believe in beings, supernatural beings, that you can't test with a test tube or aren't, uh, aren't available for scientific experiments. You're a, you're a fundamentalist. You're a Neanderthal. Uh, you're, you're living in an age and time that doesn't exist. You might as well believe in Apollos or Zeus or, or Aphrodite or any of the rest. One's as good as the other. And so that's filtered into the church. We're a little bit embarrassed to talk about about angels and demons and, and Satan because we know that in the world in which we live, in the world in which we were educated, in the world in which we engage, people just don't believe in it. Among evangelicals, which we're a part of the larger evangelical church, we do believe in, in it because the Bible teaches it. Uh, we don't have to have a scientific test tube to believe in the reality of Satan and demons. We believe it because the Bible teaches it. Uh, but there's a spectrum in what evangelicals believe about the devil. And, and we're going to be talking about cosmic conflict today and over the, next, over the next few weeks. On one side of the cosmic conflict spectrum are those who believe that demons are to blame for everything. Every sickness, every, every, everything that goes wrong in our lives, every bad thing, it's... It's a, it's a demon. So you, you get a cold, you got a demon. 
You got cancer, you got a demon. Your car battery dies, you got a demon. Uh, It's the most ridiculous and preposterous stuff that I've ever heard of. People will will sometimes say, don't say out loud that you're going to the doctor for a shot because if you do, the devil will know. Well, the devil, the devil cannot read our minds, and demons can't read our minds. They just watch us go to the doctor and get a shot. And so, not saying it doesn't change anything, does it? I can watch you. If I were to, to shadow you or you were to shadow, shadow me, you'd have been with me a few weeks ago. I had uh, some very uh, troubling asthma problems that were going on at the time, and, and so I didn't have to say out loud for the devil to learn I'm having asthma problems. All he had to do was to watch me. I was having struggle. I was struggling breathing. All he had to do was to, to, to see and observe. It's ridiculous to, to think those kinds of things. A lot of what some evangelicals believe isn't grounded in the Bible. The Bible tells us everything we need to know for faith and practice. And most of the rest is religious nonsense. On the other hand, there are those of us who do believe the Bible. We read the Bible. We acknowledge the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible. And and we believe that what the Bible says about Satan and demons is true. Well, we say it intellectually, but we really don't believe it. The most stout of evangelicals will affirm a belief in the reality of the satanic, of the demonic but they pray the most anemic prayers. They live the most spineless Christian lives. They're very big on morals, but they're not very strong and passionate about the Savior. They are regular church attenders, but they're not disciples. They're not learning and growing and maturing, and as they learn and grow and mature, they're becoming more serious about the gospel of Christ and about the kingdom of God and about the things that really matter. They'll affirm, just like we sang a moment ago, what a magnificent song, the reality of spiritual beings that are are not visible to the physical eye because they're spiritual beings But there's nothing in their lives that would lead us to believe they actually believe it. You listen to them pray. And the prayers, as I've mentioned, are just weak. They don't have any thought about the necessity of putting on the armor of God. Put on the full armor of God, Paul says. And if he didn't think it was important, he wouldn't have written it. But we go out into a war zone like going out into a a war zone in in the Middle East or where our our brave and courageous men and women who serve in the military go every day. They don't go out unprepared to fight. They don't go out into into a terrain filled with enemies who want to do nothing but to destroy them without the proper equipment. And yet we don't think much about those things. Now, there are those who, that's all they ever think about. Uh, they, you would think the Bible they read has Satan and the devil in every line. They're just mesmerized by it. They're captivated by it. 
It's all they want to talk about unless it's the second coming. It's the, it's the only thing that's in the Bible must be angels and demons in the second coming. That's one extreme, but the, the other extreme is to think the Bible says nothing about a cosmic conflict and a strategy for spiritual warfare, but it does. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, and, and, and say not much about it, but more about just setting up what I want to talk about over the next few weeks. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan isn't worried about most evangelical Christians because we do live spineless Christian lives. We're not pressing on toward the prize. And you might think and I might think, well, that's a good thing then. If, if he's not worried about me, he's not going to bother me. No, he lets our indwelling sin deal with us. He lets our indwelling sin consume us. He lets our indwelling sin divide us from our spouse and our families and our church. He, uses, he lets our indwelling sin cause us to fight over the most ridiculous things like, do you have drums or an organ? Do you wear a tie or don't wear a tie? Do you do this? or do, He lets us do that to ourselves. He doesn't have to instigate that. He doesn't have to to get involved in those kinds of discussions. He just says, they are so anemic, I'll leave them to themselves. They can destroy themselves. Following arrogant leaders who have absolutely no uh, accountability. I'll just leave it all to them. They're doing a good job. We can put our attention on those who are serious about their faith those who are serious about truth, those who are serious about taking the gospel to the nations, those who want to be disciples of Christ, those who are growing just a little bit at a time, which is the way that most of us grow, just a little bit at a time. That's the way that we grow physically. That's the way that we grow spiritually. And sometimes there's a a, a big burst where you haven't seen somebody in a few months and physically they've they've grown very, very uh, tall. And sometimes that's the way that it is spiritually. Sometimes the grace of God just swoops in by by the power of the Spirit and we just move forward a significant amount. But usually it's just a little bit here and a little bit there. That's who he's concerned about. The rest of them, he feels like, are working toward their own demise. Paul says that they were the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In some places he's called Satan, and in other scriptures he's called the devil. Jesus said he's the prince of this world. Paul said he's the prince of the power of the air. He's a serpent in 
Genesis 3 and he's a dragon in Revelation 12. He's a lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5. Jesus told a group of religious people that he was a liar, Satan, from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning. And he looked at those religious leaders in the eyes and he said, he's your father. Jesus said that he's a thief who has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. When we think of him, we shouldn't think of him like the joker who is easily recognizable because he camouflages himself, Paul says. Sometimes it's an angel of light. He's the God of this age who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. He's described in the parable of the sower as a bird who swoops down and takes the seed that has been sown by the farmer, but he's sown that seed on a hard soil, and the bird snatches it up. And then when Jesus interprets the parable, he says the devil takes away the seed that was sown so that the person cannot be saved. He's a destroyer. He wants to destroy family, church, and and nation. He has his eyes set on you if you're a passionate follower of Jesus, and he's leaving you to yourself if you're not. One is as bad a situation and condition as the other, except the passionate follower of Jesus has tools and weapons at his disposal, at her disposal, that uh, the person that lives the lethargic life, the, the inconsequential Christian existence, doesn't have readily available to him or her. You know, in a day when men and women are going to hell, Satan has so distracted the church from the message of the cross and the fight for discipleship that we're left in a, a weakened state when we when we think about those things it it can be almost overwhelming if you genuinely actually believe what the bible says about the devil those descriptions that i that i used those that terminology that came from the bible it can be overwhelming and yet god has not left us to ourselves to fight him In fact, we'll look at it a little bit more next week. In fact, we'll look at it a lot more next week where Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This isn't the only time in the book of Ephesians, which was a city renowned for the magical arts, a city where people would often travel literally across the world to buy a love potion or a curse. Or an amulet that would protect them from spirits that control fate and destiny through the stars. You remember it was in Ephesus where seven sons of a high priest tried to cast a demon out of a man. And in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon said through the man, we know Paul, 
We know Jesus, but who do you think you are? And the man overpowered them and sent them off beaten and battered. How horrible it would be for Jesus through the scriptures to tell us how ominous our opponent, the opponent of our soul is and then to be like a parent saying to a child, it's time to go out into the war zone and not give them any protection, to not give them any weapons, to not give them any essential tools in their arsenal to fight their enemy. How terrible would that be? But that's not the way that the Bible describes it. It wasn't a fair fight between Jesus and Satan. And it's not a very fair fight when a spirit-filled believer is tempted by the devil. Because the spirit-filled believer has a power that overpowers anything that Satan can muster against him or her. For example, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And, and Paul is about to, to pray a third request for the, for the Ephesians. And he says, beginning in verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He is saying that the power that raised Christ from the dead is resident in the life of the believer through the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not like I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've clothed you in righteousness. Now go out in the world and do the best you can. Turn with me over to chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Before he ever paints this foreboding picture of the war that, that the believer is in, this cosmic battle with world forces of darkness, he's already been dropping, and they're not even hints, they're just forthright observations about the strength and the power of the spirit-filled life. So he says in chapter 3, verse 16, and another prayer to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Notice again, it's his power. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. It's not our strength, it's a supernatural strength. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of money to spend a lot of time lifting weights. I'm not one of those people, as you know. My grandchildren asked me several times, Jay Lynn got back from helping her mom. The, I, I kept uh, five of them Saturday for a while, and, and Riley said to me, Papa, did you make it for a Big Mac? And I said, no, but I, I did the second best thing, which I won't, won't reveal at this time. And... <laughs> And so, you know, they, in part, they do that because they want to protect their family. If someone were going to accost their family, if someone were going to accost my wife, I could be the Tasmanian devil. I'm small, I'm aging, don't mess with my wife. And there are men much bigger, much stronger, uh, much younger than I am, 
and they feel the very same way. But they've been to the they've they've been to the gym. They're physically fit. They're physically strong. They're capable of defending themselves. But we don't think about defending our family from the one from the one being that is set on their spiritual demise. We don't even think about it. It doesn't cross our mind. But he says, you've been strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, and that's part of a prayer. You turn over, or you just go down to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us there is a power by the person of the Holy Spirit that will enable us to live spirit filled lives and passionately pursue holiness for the glory of God to be disciples that make a difference to carry ourselves in an authoritative spiritual way that intimidates the demons of hell because they know if we take a job in this plant, we're bringing with us God's power ready to be unleashed in gospel witness. And we're not weak and anemic and spineless and afraid of taking the Christian life seriously. We're not just moralists that say, you know, I, I want to be a good husband and I want to be a good father and I want to be a good provider. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to go in a dark room and watch pornography. I'm not going to do those things. And he says, if that's as far as it goes, I'm more than happy for, for you to live like that. I'm more than happy for you not to watch pornography. I'm more than happy for you to be a good provider. I'm more than happy for you to, to be involved and engaged in your, in your children's Uh, athletics what he doesn't want is for us to be so serious about our own discipleship that we are serious about discipling our children and we are serious about passing on the truth the baton of truth to them then he becomes concerned but we've not been left to to do the battle on our own. In fact, the the war has been won. All that remains are the skirmishes of a dying dog. All that remains are the skirmishes of a lion that's been defeated. Now he can still do damage and is doing damage because he knows his time, his, his number of days are marked. But at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, much to Satan's surprise, he lost the war. This is the way that Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Colossians 2, chapter, Colossians 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and that's where all of us were, before we knew Jesus. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, 
He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then he says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You can almost sense in your imagination the demons of hell chomping at the bit as Jesus moaned and groaned and with each passing breath moved toward physical death. To look at it from a, from a secular perspective, it's the death of a, of, a, of a once promising life. A life filled with potential, and a, a, a man that could captivate the crowds with his speaking, could heal the blind and resuscitate the dead. And they could, could only imagine as they thought, the battle is almost, the war is almost over. We, we're about to win the day. And the moment he died physically, he ascended spiritually. It says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. He humiliated them, having triumphed over them through him. Peter put it this way, same idea, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. As he ascended to heaven, they were completely defeated and humiliated and probably a little bit befuddled that God would redeem the world through the death of his beloved son, that God would punish him in the place of a sinful people. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, speaking again about Jesus, Paul wrote, far above, he was given a name and he was given a position far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus uses Satan like a rug and he cleans his feet on him. And so we have absolutely nothing to fear unless we live a spineless Christian life that it's not serious about discipleship. Or we're just not aware of all of the, all of the tools that have been afforded us to live a dynamic Christian life amidst a world engaged in a cosmic conflict. That's what I want us to talk about over the next, over the next few weeks. We say, Pastor, what does this have to, have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, I think as you could tell by the scriptures I read, it has everything to do with the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us where the death nail was slammed into the, into the coffin of Satan when Jesus conquered him at the cross. In his apparent weakness, he defeated 
the devil in his apparent strength. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of Satan. And so on the cross, on the cross he bore our sins in his body on the tree to secure for us the privilege of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a righteous, a righteousness that's not our own, so that, so that we can be clothed in spiritual armor and we can be afforded spiritual weapons. And so this morning as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it really is a celebration in these moments. As we remember the fact Jesus Christ won the victory on the cross. And he won the victory for us. If you're a guest with us today, you may be wondering, Pastor, what's the, the policy of the church for guests as it uh, relates to the Lord's Supper? If you're a guest of ours and, and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been baptized and, and uh, you're seeking to follow the Lord Jesus like most of us are. It's one step forward, two steps back. We want you to take, participate with us today, celebrate with us. Just as if the Apostle Paul were, the Apostle Paul were here, we'd want him to, to celebrate uh, with us as well. But if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus or you know your, your life is really in a shambles, I don't mean you're struggling with sin like all of us struggle with sin. you just kind of given up. While we're, while we're doing it, why don't you let it, the plate pass you by and, and just spend the time praying about that. And getting yourself right with the Lord. I'm going to lead this in prayer in just a moment. And, and maybe there's something on your mind that you know is between you and God. And you know, you can confess that right now. You say, Pastor, you mean I can confess that and partake of the Lord's Supper right now? If you genuinely are repentant and asking for forgiveness, you, you can genuinely take the Lord's Supper. So I haven't beaten myself up enough yet. I need to beat myself up and I need to, I need to grovel in the, in, in the dirt just a little bit more. Well, why? Why? Why demean what Jesus has already accomplished? You don't have to grovel. You say, Lord, I'm genuinely repentant because I snapped at my wife today. On the way to church, please forgive me. And, and then maybe you'll just lean over to her and we'll be watching to see who's leaning over right now and, and say, uh, honey, forgive me. And, and a little bit later, you can, you can expand on, on that. Give her your credit card. Let her go to Macy's. You know, whatever it is, the groveling takes. There's some groveling that's, that's, uh, that's necessary. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that the Bible doesn't overwhelm us. It doesn't overwhelm us with information. It tells us what we need to know and no more. It tells us what we need to believe and no more. It tells us what we need to do and no more. And Father, we thank you that on every page, we don't find him because every page takes us to you. He's just a side show. And so Father, in these moments, strengthen us, empower us for genuine, authentic discipleship and Christian living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.